pray for our time. Ask that God would bless our study of this wonderful passage, and then we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. She conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could not hide him any longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And Moses sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Uel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said, Well, then where is he? Why have you left a man? Call him, that he may come and eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with a man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that your word speaks life unto us. That this book of the covenant reminds us that you're ever faithful to your covenant promises. So send your spirit among us this morning that our eyes may be open to the good news of this passage. 
that you might deliver us from our enemies, save us from our sins, bring us into fellowship with you, help us to hear as a dying people, help me to preach as a dying man with courage and clarity, that we might look on Jesus Christ and find life in his name. Amen. Oh, you may be seated. When I was growing up, the educational curriculum of my youth required us to read a book that has fallen out of fashion in recent times. I'm sure some of you have read this before, Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And if you know that story well enough, you know that right from the outset of The Adventures of Huck Finn, Huck encounters the Moses of our passage. One night, he's at Widow Douglas's house, and she begins to teach him from Exodus chapter 2. And here's how Huck recounts his encounter with Moses in the bulrushes. He says, after supper, Widow Douglas got out her book and learned me about Moses in the bulrushes. And I was in a sweat to find out all about him. But by and by, she let it out that Moses had been dead a considerable long time. So then I didn't care no more about him. Because I don't take no stock in dead people. I tell you that, of course, children, because maybe you've read that story, maybe you've heard that story. You recognize that Moses, yes, of course, has been dead a considerable long time. But we care about him deeply. Because in a way that's so profoundly unique, he shows us in a way that you won't find in other Old Testament stories. The great work of God's grace in saving his people the great remembrance of God's mercy as he keeps his covenant for his people. And so we find him today being born. We find him growing up even quite far into adulthood by the end of our passage. And where we left off in last week's passage at the end of chapter 1 was Israel in the midst of a great terror in Egypt. They'd been there for centuries and centuries Multiplying greatly, God's great covenant promise that they would become a great nation was coming to pass. And Pharaoh was concerned about the number of Israelites there in Egypt because of the military might that they represented. So he began to scheme about how he was going to control the Israelite crowds. And he began with this first scheme of oppression by ruthless slavery. But you might remember if you were with us last week that the more Israel was oppressed, the more they multiplied. And so Pharaoh needed to do something else. So he turned to infanticide, killing babies. He told the two chief Hebrew midwives, when any male child is born, if it's a baby boy, take it and kill it. But these Hebrew midwives feared God, the text said, and they completely disobeyed their ruler as they should have. So Pharaoh turned to a third scheme. He went from covert infanticide to overt infanticide. He commanded all the people in Egypt throw the baby Hebrew boys in the Nile River. And so if you want to understand the scene correctly when we turn to chapter 2, you need to recognize it very much is a Holocaust era in the life of Israel. Ruthless oppression was their vocation in terms of that oppression being enacted upon them as they worked. Not just that, every home was a horror as God was Frankly, in a supernatural way, blessing enormously the nation of Israel. So many babies being born, but every family, no doubt in fear, is it going to be a boy? 
Or is it going to be a girl? Many people beginning to wonder as the decades continue to pass, as year after year go by, when will God ever do something about this? Maybe you've been in that situation before. Maybe you're in that situation even in your life this week. Asking the same question. When will God ever do something about this? Maybe you look out on the world today. Many of you look out on our nation and wonder. When will God ever do something about the godlessness and chaos that marks our country? Or maybe you bring it closer to home. Your children are growing up and rejecting the faith of their family. Your adult children have rejected the faith of their fathers. But you remember God's covenant promise and say, when will you do something about this? Maybe it's suffering a season of pain. Maybe it's a strained relationship. Maybe it's the need for new employment. Maybe it's some type of bitterness that you're having to work through or being enacted against you. And you likewise wonder, when will God do something about this? Of course, the question for many people in our world today is is much more basic than when will God do something about this? It's will God do something about this? And the question being answered in our text today is that question, and it's answered with a resounding yes and amen, because you need to be encouraged from this passage today. I want you to find comfort in this passage today that God will answer His people. God does answer His people. And if last week's theme in chapter 1 was God keeps His covenant promise, the nuance on this week's theme is God remembers His covenant promise. And you're going to have to get all the way to the end of the text to recognize the significance of what it means that God remembers His covenant promise. But that's certainly where we're going in Exodus chapter 2. And as I read the text, maybe you notice there's three distinct scenes. Scene number 1, verses 1 through 10. Scene number 2, verses 11 through 22. Scene number 3, verse 23 through 25. So I'll walk under those scenes or around those scenes and through those scenes with three simple headings. First, God saves His chosen. Second, He prepares His chosen. And then thirdly, God hears His chosen. So first of all, God saves His chosen Redeemer. Look again at verse 1 and 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived... And bore a son. Now, what's interesting about this passage, it takes all the way till verse 10 that you get a name. It's it's spoken of just this woman, this man, she, him. But we know later on that this man in verse 1 is Amram. The woman is named Jochebed. And some of you parents might be able to sympathize with surely the terror that would have accompanied that pregnancy, the anxiety and agony that would have come along the way as week passes after week and the belly continues to grow, the baby is coming, and you get to that point of delivery and the baby cries out and everyone wonders, is it a baby girl who will find safety in Egypt? Or is it a baby boy that Egypt wants to slaughter, and out comes what? A son. But quite quickly, we're told, the mother has optimism about this baby. You see, verse 2 continues, when she saw that he was a fine child. It's a phrase that everyone tends to render a little bit differently. You'll find some translations that will say he was a beautiful boy. So it's his looks that were really arresting. Or even older translations would say he was no ordinary child. That 
Jochebed in that moment. I looked on the child and it was like the first glance, the first laugh, the first smile, the first cry he offered. It was so clear, this is going to be a special boy. But the Hebrew is actually much more basic. It simply says, she saw that he was good. That's creation language. Remember from Genesis 1, God creating and each day he blesses it saying, and God saw that it was good. And of course, three months go by. The baby's maybe big enough now, loud enough. Uh, we have no idea, do we? The Bible doesn't tell us how Egypt went about this genocide of sorts that they were throwing upon Israel. You know, maybe it was like what it was in World War II when Hitler's Nazi Germany, that all the citizens were encouraged to spy on each other and report nefarious occurrences and crimes along the way. So maybe Egyptian people were hiding out in the byways and alleyways of Goshen. And every time that they heard a baby cry, they would report to the authorities, you know, a baby's crying out from 113 Goshen Street. Go figure out if it's a boy or not. We don't know what it was, but clearly at three months, Jochebed says, I can't hide him anymore. It's impossible to keep him away from prying eyes. So look at what she does. She took him. I'm sorry, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now you want to circle that word if it's in your translation as basket. It's a significant word. Because it shows, that word shows up in only one other story in all the Bible. It's a story back in Genesis. It's a story that also talks about bitumen and pitch. It's Noah's ark. The word here is ark. She's placing the baby in an ark. And there's a striking correspondence, isn't there? Noah placed in an ark. Moses placed in an ark. Noah made to undergo a watery ordeal. Same with Moses. Noah, of course, survives this ordeal and becomes a deliverer of God's people. Moses survives this ordeal and becomes a deliverer of God's people. But people have wondered about Jochebed's faith in this moment. Does it seem as though she has maybe given herself over to too much fear in putting the baby away? Imagine how hard that must be as a mother. You put him in an ark, cover him up, set him among the reeds in the Nile River, and hope it goes okay. Uh, none other than even John Calvin in our tradition thought that she made the wrong decision. Yet Hebrews 11 tells us it was by faith she put the baby there because she didn't fear the king's edict. And maybe that's an encouragement to some of you today to recognize how throughout the ages, Christians have often conceived of faith only in radical categories. So if Jochebed and Amram were, were actually faithful in this moment, they wouldn't have tried to hide the child. They would just carry it around, crying Moses throughout the streets, daring the government to take them from their arms, defying the government with their bold and zealous faith. What the Bible is reminding us again, and, and take this as an exhortation to you, that faith is often altogether ordinary. It sometimes includes things like planning, prudence, a preparation, trusting that God will bless it in an amazing supernatural way, which of course he does, doesn't he? Because as the ark is bobbing there among the reeds, the text goes on to say, if you notice the next few verses, Pharaoh's daughter, one of his, Pharaoh, one of his daughters comes along. She sees this little ark, says, hey, one of my servants, go grab that and bring it over here. And look at what she discovers in verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, Well, this is one of the Hebrew children. 
I've always wondered, how did she know right away that it was a Hebrew child? Maybe they just looked that different than Egyptian babies. Maybe she realized he was circumcised, and only Hebrew children, boys, were circumcised. Or maybe it was as simple as, of course, no Egyptian child would be left bobbing in the reeds in this basket. Only a Hebrew child would have been done so. But she took great pity on this child. You see that in the middle of verse 6. Strikingly, this narrative actually is woven together in a quite literary way. So in the first 10 verses, the first scene, the, the word child lies at the exact center. 70 Hebrew words on the other side and 70 Hebrew words after that. It reminds us that the child lies at the center, not just of the ark, but of this story. And you might know the old preachers used to love to talk about God's Word as an ark. Because in there is salvation. And in this ark too, isn't it true? God's Word, the Bible, Holy Scripture. At the very center lies the story of another child. Another deliverer whose name is Jesus Christ. But you know, taking in this whole scene is the baby's older sister. She doesn't get named either. We eventually find out in the story of Exodus, it's Miriam. And with no small amount of guile, she walks up to Pharaoh's daughter and she says, Can I find a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And I've always wondered if Pharaoh's daughter looked upon Miriam's request with a knowing eye. Here it is, a Hebrew boy. And it just so happens, immediately, a Hebrew sister seems to come along the way and says, Why don't I find someone to nurse him for you? And so maybe it's then with a degree of knowledge we haven't seen before. She simply commands, doesn't she, Pharaoh's daughter, verse 8, go. So Miriam goes home and she says to Jochebed, Pharaoh's daughter has found the baby. And guess what? She wants you to nurse him. And then you see in the next verse, Pharaoh's daughter says, hey, state-supported, state-paid parenthood belongs to you, Jochebed. You take the baby and we'll pay you to take care of your child. And what a joy that must have been. No doubt for Jochebed to recognize the waters that were meant to kill her child have very much now become the waters that have saved her child. The very family that meant to kill her child is now the very family that ironically is saving her child. It even seems to be, verse 9, something of an early echo of something we're going to see later on in Exodus when the nation of Israel departs and they plunder the Egyptian of their goods. Well, you'll see in verse 10 that we're told after a certain amount of time, the child grew older. The text doesn't tell us exactly when. In all likelihood, that was at the age of three when the child would have been weaned. It could have been as old as 10 years old when education would have ramped up. But however old he was, look at what we're told. Jochebed brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. And that's even an early prophecy, too, of what's about to come in this book. Moses' name, drawn out of the water. Because, of course, God is going to what? Deliver his people through his Redeemer, Moses, by what? Drawing them out of the water, the Red Sea of Egypt. God is saving his chosen Redeemer, and now God is preparing his chosen mediator in scene number two. You know, students, I wonder if some of you are like me, and Sunday is a difficult day. 
It was for me growing up a, a quite difficult day in my youth. Uh, not because of Sunday school or church services or church gatherings. You know, those are all fine and good. It was just by the time you got to mid-afternoon with each passing hour, I knew Monday was coming, which means school was coming. And I was one of those that couldn't stand the school preparation that often would come, always fighting against the education that I was demanded to take part of in my own youthful exuberance because I often felt like, only thing I do in life is go to school, week after week, month after month, school, school, and more school. And if that was Moses' sense, we don't know, but it would have been quite likely because the Egyptian education of the time was the finest in the world. Moses' tutors would have been handpicked by Pharaoh. They would have drilled him in handwriting, reading, foreign languages, Egyptian religion, geography, politics, economics. Frankly, almost any subject that you would want to have an expertise in, he got an expertise in. But what's altogether astonishing is that in the midst of that kind of Egyptian indoctrination, verse 11 is here to tell us he kept his Hebrew identity. Look at what we're told. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian being in the Hebrew, one of his people. So you might want to ask the question, if it's true, as it probably is, that he was brought into Pharaoh's household at the age of three, how is it that he kept this Hebrew identity? Well, recognize God's grace and even giving his mother Jochebed those three years. Some of you mothers might be encouraged by this. Three years to communicate God's covenant promises to a covenant child. To remind them the truth of who God is and who they are. And if it was longer than that, Jochebed even had more time. Because we know from the New Testament by verse 11, Moses is 40 years old. At the age of 40, he still reckons himself a Hebrew before an Egyptian. And what you're going to see in this middle scene is that Moses is going about the work of mediation in a couple of different ways. His first attempt at mediation actually results in a murder. Look at verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. You know, kids, I'm sure your parents have told you before, look both ways. But probably not for this reason, have they? Look both ways when you cross the street. Not as Moses is doing. Looking both ways before he kills a man. And you have to know something about what the New Testament tells us about Moses' mind at this moment. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us that Moses believed in killing this man. So he's basically functioning as a judge, a deliverer for Israel. That his people would recognize he was going to deliver them from their bondage. But they didn't understand it. He thought this was going to be the great signal to the nation of Israel. Your deliverer has come and I am him. Follow me out to the land of promise. But maybe it's just even another reminder how often we as believers try to enact God's work in our own timing and in our own power. Yes, Moses clearly is God's deliverer and chosen mediator. But he must go at God's pace. He must go in God's power. Because this whole event is going to happen so that God alone gets the glory. Not Moses in his might. Well, the next day comes, you'll notice in the next verse, two Hebrews are fighting with each other, struggling. Students, kids, you want to picture fist fighting. And the one that's in the wrong, when Moses says, what are you doing? He says, well, 
Verse 14, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And the text tells us Moses was afraid. Somebody knew about what had happened. You must not think that any sin is ever done in secret. Someone always knows about it. Even if it is only the Lord himself. No sin is ever truly secret. All sin will be made public at some point. Well, Pharaoh hears about it, you'll see in verse 15. He puts out a bolo for Moses. Be on the lookout for Moses because I want to kill him. Execute him for killing one of my slave masters. Moses flees to the land of Midian. You'll notice at the end of verse 15. And he sits down by a well. The people of Midian were descendants of Abraham. The people of Midian were sojourners in the promised land. The people of Midian tended to wander around the western side of the promised land. As like most nomadic people would. They would tend to kind of stop at these wells. Because wells weren't just simply places to get water for your flocks. Wells were places of converse, places of trading, places of like a city council would be today or a city hall. It was, a, it was a place to be in a kind of nomadic area. And so Moses, understandably then, sits down at this well. He needs to kind of figure out the lay of the land. What's going on in this place of Midian? And his second attempt at mediation is now going to come. If his first attempt resulted in murder, his second attempt is going to result in a marriage. Because you see verse 16, seven daughters of the priest of Midian, they come to this well. They are soon accosted by these shepherds that are trying to drive them away. Moses clearly has this kind of like savior personality about him. Because look at verse 17, the shepherds came and drove the daughters away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. The daughters return home to their father quite quickly in the day. So quickly, in fact, he says, why are you guys home so soon? And he says, or they say, well, we met this Egyptian man. and He, he saved us from the shepherds. And he even watered all of our flocks for us. And if you read verse 20 rightly, essentially this man that we're soon going to become more famous for the name of Jethro, he says, well, why don't you go get him? Why did you leave him there by the well at this act of kindness? Go bring him here and we'll give him some bread and show him some hospitality. So Moses comes into the tents of Ruel and not only into the tents, he has a meal. Verse 21 and 22 tells us Moses was further content to stay with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Again, underscoring, even from the earliest part of his adulthood, Moses' identity as a pilgrim, as a sojourner in the land of Egypt, just as his fellow Israelites were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God saves his chosen redeemer. God prepares his chosen mediator. For notice verse 23, how it begins, during those many days. You know, if you don't have like a full awareness of how the Bible often speaks of these things, you just take those passages, phrases during those many days. They just kind of race by them, not realizing that the Bible will later on tell us those many days represented another 40 years. So God preparing his chosen redeemer for 40 years there in the wilderness as a shepherd. 40 years so often in the Bible signifying a time of testing, of preparation. Because it's after 40 years when Moses is at the ripe old age of 80. He's going to show up, isn't he? Lord willing, in next week's text at the beginning of chapter 3, and find Yahweh call him to be that divine deliverer from a burning bush. 
But the text ends with God hearing his chosen people. Look at the rest of verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Some of you might know the name of a famous missionary of decades gone by named Helen Roosevelt. She was a doctor in the land at the time. It was called Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And there was a woman that one day came into the medical station and she was giving birth to a child and it was a, a premature baby that ended up taking the life of the mother. And uh, Dr. Roosevelt needed, they knew, needed to do something quite quickly in order to save this, this young preemie baby that was there at the station. But what they needed, they didn't have. Uh, they needed to concoct this kind of incubator of sorts. And in order to do that, they needed a hot water bottle, but they didn't have a hot water bottle. So they began to search around the entire station to see if they could find these rudimentary tools for a rudimentary incubator. And nothing could be found. And so they did the only thing they knew how to do. They got in a circle and began to pray. And one little girl there at the station said, Dear Lord, please send us a hot water bottle today. And please also send a baby doll so the little sister might not be lonely. And I was... I don't know how much longer, maybe several hours, a couple hours later, they heard, and it was a delivery, this large cart that had just been dropped off. They opened it up, and there at the top of the box was nothing other than a hot water bottle. And the same child that had so earnestly prayed for that hot water bottle, like, jumped into the box and started digging through everything, and they were saying, what are you doing? Well, if God gave a hot water bottle, surely there's a baby doll in here too. And she got to the very end, and sure enough, there was a baby doll in there. And Dr. Roosevelt loved to tell the story not so much as it is a fabulous example of God's answering of prayer, but to underscore God's providence because it was five months before that that box was shipped. And it only landed that day just as they needed it. God often is preparing his answers to his people's prayers for decades before they even realize he's about ready to bring them to pass which is exactly what's happening at the close of our text. Because what I want to do as we begin to close is focus your attention on four verbs. Four verbs in verse 24 and 25. These verbs are ones that are so simple, even a child can understand them. So kids, pay attention. There are four verbs that you want to write on your heart and treat them as something like the points of a spiritual compass. It's just like you can take a compass and wherever you go, you know how to get your way home. You take these four points, these four actions of God, and wherever you are, you remember God will bring you all the way home. You see the end of verse 23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Point number one, God hears. You see verse 24, God heard their groaning. God hears the groaning of his people. Those of you that are like us and have young children at home, you might feel like essentially every hour of every day is filled with little more than daddy, 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 mommy, daddy, mommy. And we have six of them, so this goes around a lot <laughs> as the course of the day. And they're always waiting for you to acknowledge them, aren't they? Yes, son. Yeah, daddy's listening. I may be looking that way, but I hear you. I'm listening. And, and you know, you give that simple acknowledgement. Yes, I'm listening to you. What do they begin to do? They talk some more give you the question they wanted answered, tell you their troubles, tell you what their brother and sister did, whatever it may be. In the same way, you get that encouragement from this passage. God hears. So why don't you keep speaking to Him? God hears. So pour out your groanings to Him. 
It's not just that God hears. Notice verse 24 as it continues. God remembers. He heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. It's quite hard, isn't it, to really be able to get the Bible to fit together if you don't know this covenant very well that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And kids, when you see language like that, God remembered Make sure you remember that God never forgets. You know, we were reading this last night with the children, and one of the boys said, Well, Daddy, it's true, though, that God doesn't forget. How can it be said that God remembers? And I thought to myself, well, that's a wonderful question. And here's the simple way to answer it, of course, is because in Hebrew, remembered has a different nuance than we tend to use it in English. It's a remembrance that demands an action. So you could do something actually later on today that's quite useful. You go through all the times in the Old Testament that Yahweh is said to remember and watch. He will act quickly. And so I was explaining that to the kids. And so the son that inquired about this, he said, So, after thinking about it for a few seconds in his mind, he said, It's basically like God just saying, let's do this. And I said, yeah, that's probably a fair way of thinking about it. God hears. God remembers according to his covenant. We'll come back to that in a second. Also, God sees, look at verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. As surely as no sin escapes the eye of our Father in heaven, no sorrow escapes His eye. He knows, He sees, He hears, He remembers those deepest desires and pains through which you suffer. So, God hears, God remembers, God sees, fourthly, Tying it all together, God knows. The end of verse 25, the final three verses. And God knew. I'm sure you know that God's knowledge is not the knowledge of bare facts. It's not God saying, yes, my people in Egypt are amidst slavery and I need to rescue them. It's an intimate knowledge. That not only knows that they're in slavery, but understands every pain, every hurt, every hardship, every sorrow. He knows them. Intimately, as intimately as a man and wife know each other. This is the God who remembers his covenant. The God who hears. He remembers. He sees. And he knows. And perhaps you know, if you sped the story forward, to a young teenage girl named Mary, an angel speaks to her and said, you're going to have a baby child. And that baby is going to be a boy who's going to deliver God's people. At the end of Luke chapter 1, she sings this great song that's often traditionally known as the Magnificat in Christian history. And at the end of that song, listen to what she says, and tell me if you don't hear an echo of Exodus chapter 2. Yahweh has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So what you find then in Exodus chapter 2 at the end, God is on the move. Yahweh is ready to act. This great drama that is the redemption of his people in Old Testament history is about ready to begin. And there was a time also in the distant future when the time was ripe for God to act again, for him to bring salvation to his people, for him to send another redeemer, another mediator, the true, the better redeemer and mediator whose name is Jesus Christ, where Moses comes along and thinks, in this killing of an Egyptian I'm going to save my people. 
The Lord Jesus comes along and says, it's going to be in a killing that I'm going to save my people. But it won't be one that I commit. It will be the murder of me. It will be me suffering death unjustly on the cross of Calvary. So that God might what? Remember his covenant promise. So that God might what? See sinners like you and me. Hear sinners like you and me. Remember sinners like you and me. Know sinners like you and me. So recognize today that God continues to remember his covenant promise through his son, Jesus Christ. Because it's Jesus Christ who is his chosen redeemer. His chosen mediator for his chosen people. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us through this kind word of your covenant mercy. Father, we confess that too often we feel that you have forgotten us, that you have failed us. Lord, we repent for that sin and ask that you would even restore us in the fullness of faith to know that you are always with us, hearing and seeing, knowing and remembering. I do pray for any in this room, any who are even watching and listening, in the midst of a season of perhaps unusual sorrow and suffering, that you would remember their covenant promise that you've made to them in Jesus Christ, that you would act quickly and speedily on their behalf. Act in such a way that you alone can get the glory in the midst of their situation and circumstance. We pray these things through the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we want to sing our hymn of response printed there in your bulletins. A hymn that rejoices in Christ's mediatorial work before the throne of God above.